Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hey, what would you do with $100, a cell phone, and an old truck? Sounds like a country western song. No, really, it's about starting a business. That's the premise of Undercover Billionaire, a show currently streaming on Discovery Plus, where self-made business people have 90 days to build a thriving business with absolutely nothing. Well, one of the stars of this season is Elaine Kalati, a well-known interior designer, mansion flipper, and rancher. Elaine has been a serial entrepreneur since the age of 14 and cut her teeth in a male-dominated construction business. Elaine, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you? Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah, it's so good to have you. Now, do you have a horse? I need to ask you that. If you, you know, you've been out with some, you know, like like cattle, you've got three. What kind of horses you got? Uh, Worms. I have two warm bloods and I have a pony. Ooh. Big, I my, like my, warm bloods. Warm bloods, bloods are big. nice horses. Yeah. Oh, they're so beautiful. My my Tallulah. She's yeah. tossed me a few times, but she's she's a good animal. I love her. I've had a couple of those. I named that horse Glue, but that's a different story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you've been an entrepreneur since you were fourteen. What was your first business? Oh my gosh, shoe shining. Yeah, really. Like, I owned a shoe shine company. I got a job. I was too young to work in the bars, but this man had these shoeshine stands and you could work at the shoeshine stand and, you know, make several hundred dollars a night, which is hard to do when you're 16. It's really, too, yeah. you know, challenge. Yeah. And, um, and then eventually I, I had, you know, a bunch of them. My very first job was I worked for train heating and air conditioning and I sold heating and air conditioning surveys on the phone. And I'd be like, oh, hello, wow. my name's Elaine. I'm with train heating and air conditioning. We would like to do a survey on how much energy you're using. <laughs> and I got paid by the lead. Yeah. That's crazy. That's big crazy. money. There's big, big money you, in leads. Do you like selling? Um, I don't know that I like it. I do it. It's automatic. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're all selling something. We, we have to sell ourselves. I, I, you know, it, some people don't get along that well with an A personality salesperson type. Right. Yeah. And there's definitely an organic way to sell something where you don't come across as pushy. Um, but if you can't sell yourself, you're dead in the water. Exactly. And you seem like somebody who's pretty driven. Where'd you get that drive? I have no idea that I really don't know. I've really? Been, what'd you, what'd your dad mom do? Well, my dad, my dad was a fighter pilot and he was definitely, you know, jonesing for extreme. He was yeah. that guy. And I got that gene. My mom has tireless energy. Um, she was an orphan and a self-starter and uh, there she's unique to her. So there's, you know, if it's genetic, I got it genetically. If it's about, I feel better when I'm productive. So it's dopamine to me. Um, Mm -hmm. It could be that. I don't know, but I definitely have tireless energy. Are you kind of like an always on switch or oh, I mean, do you have that on off? Do you pause? Do you relax a little bit? I mean, I, I sense that like from the, from the time you get up, it's like full caffeine from then on. I <laughs> There you go. I Good coffee job. In the morning, I confess, but no, just a cup, a big cup, but just one. Um, I, if I'm meditating at all, it's when I'm walking with the dogs, when I'm uh, gar- in the, in the field, 
uh, when I'm on the horse, when I'm cooking, uh, I, I'm, I tend to be a little more quiet, but most of the time I don't shut up. Yeah. I've been told many yeah. times, zip it. You're, you need to be quiet now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suspect that you paid much attention to that though. Well, hmm, I was thinking about how we are our parents, even when we don't want to be. And you have to think about the things about your parents that drove you crazy in addition to the things about your parents that you love because you've inherited the whole ball of wax, right? Yeah. And listening is not my strong suit. I've been really working on it the last seven, eight years. Really have. Is it, is it paying off? Um, I don't know. You'll tell me when this is over, what you think, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but listening is a big skill. I tell a lot of leaders, you know, they ask me what's the, you know, what's one of the best skills a leader has, you know, of a big company or any company. And I say it's always in listening because real leader, you know, real entrepreneurs, real great, successful people, business, they're always listening for that one thing, that little aha that they can pull out. So I think you'd have that. You're just not giving yourself credit for it. I haven't, nobody's like, you know, given me an attaboy for it. How about that? <laughs> well, well, sometimes, you know, like my skill set is also one of those people. I've just, I'm full bore. I'm like a big Mack truck coming down the road. So sometimes that's what we show, but really what we really have. Now you're mainly known as an interior designer. You, you've also worked in construction. How did you get up and how did you get into that industry? How did you get into construction? I, well, I, when you, when you're in the business of building things, you're generally building for other people. I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's very hard to get that off the ground day one, which I think is something we really should work on in this country where first time home buyers get everything that they need to get a home. Um, and why not? Right. Why, yeah. why not help them? Um, separately from that, if you, if you're working for people and you're like me, you, you can see the money that they're making on you. Right. I'm, yeah. A very creative person when it comes to space. I, I see empty space full. I always have. And I can figure out how to do it. And so people made a ton, a ton of money on my yeah. back. So I was like, if I'm going to really do this, I need to do it for myself. And I can do it. For, I've forgotten more than most people will ever know about, you know, a lot of things having to do with building. Um, and the one thing I know about building is no one's a real expert, right? There's a million different ways to do it. Uh, anything from, you know, Adobe to high construction, there's a different way to do it. It's all about, you know, what you've experienced. And so it's important to your point to really listen and to observe how people do construction across the globe and, and how you can take those things that are permittable that, you know, in, in where you're working and implement something new, you know, we can't, we have a propensity, I think, to, you know, kick out things that are unknown to us. And that's, that can be frustrating. I really am. I love like these Enviro boards, you know, like, you know, prefabbed homes and, and housing. And I like them in, in bigger projects and commercial projects because it allows people to work in another location in manufacturing and then bring it onto a site. And you're not always, everyone's not all in construction. What's an Enviro? Um, what's it? You said Environ board? Enviro board? Well, Enviro board is, it's a genre of prefabbed walls and okay. prefabbed construction homes, which help building go faster. It, the quality of the material that you're putting together is really good. It's because, you know, because it's met certain requirements in a factory. So it's stronger. And, and there's so many cool things in construction that you could never really get to if you don't listen and you don't observe. Yeah. If it you tends to get you over- to the experts of knowing what they do and how they do it. So getting you the best of the best, right? 
Mm-hmm. Our environment is the most single, most important thing everywhere. Everything from how we sleep to how we wake up in the morning and what we put in our bodies, how warm we are, how cold we are, what, what climate we live in. Our environment, it matters so much. And it, it's one thing you cannot do on the internet. You know, like you can't, you just can't, you don't sleep on in virtual time. And it's so important to get it right for you. Get it right for you. Well, speaking about getting it right, speaking about getting it right, let me take a break for a quick second. I want to come back and talk about wealth right after this message. C-Suite Radio. Hey, everybody, we are back. This is Jeffrey Hazel with All Business with Jeffrey Hazel right here on C-Suite Radio. Do you know that C-Suite Radio is the world's largest business podcast network? That's right. We're huge, getting bigger and bigger every single day. We just added like 100 new shows, well over 300, going to 400 now with that new 100 shows. So kind of don't forget, check it, check out all the other shows that we have on this network. Don't just listen to me. Hey, listen, I'm talking to Elaine uh, Kalati. She's a well-known interior designer a mansion flipper, a rancher, and of course, she is the star of Undercover Billionaire. I want to ask you first, or the next question I have for you is about existential wealth, the concept of that. Can you explain what that means? Well, existential. It's existential, right? Existentialism. I like essential wealth. Essential wealth. You got to have it, right? Well, (laughs) think of it. Think of it. Think of existential as why are we here? You know, Mm. what are we doing here? as people and, you know, as a human race and whatever. And then think about what your skill set is, Jeffrey. What is your personal like superpower, right? What do you do better than anyone? And because that's your existential wealth, that's, that's the thing that you sell through. It makes no difference how successful you are when someone's hiring you. They're not hiring you because of how successful you are. They're hiring because of what you do. Right. And, and that's, I've interviewed so many people for work and for jobs, and it marvels me that people can't sell themselves. Most people don't know what their best skill set is when you straight up ask them, hi, what is your best skill set? And they have to really think about it. I think in part, people don't want to, you know, successful people don't want to kind of box themselves in. But some people, I think, just don't know. They haven't been stretched and they've never been asked the question. And existentialism is about like, why are we here? And, and we just have to think about what our best skill set is. And what does your existential balance sheet look like? Like, how old are you? How many years left do you have in, in you to work? Is somebody going to invest in you and train you because you take care of yourself? I mean, how, how is it for a big company to spend, you know, millions of dollars on R and D and, and working in, in human resources and then have somebody dropped out of a heart attack because, you know, they have an alcohol problem and they drink too, you know, how do you know? So mm-hmm. what is your existential value? Um, how many jobs have you come and gone through? Like how easy do you quit? Because someone who quits easy is a hard employee to have. Yeah. So there's all these things that I think weigh into wealth. And I'm a big believer that we're not tapping into those on a, on a level that's kind of in the, you know, the, the younger generation. Because if we can tap into it, it doesn't matter how everyone's chasing around making millions of dollars undercover billionaire is a show. I mean, that's a television show undercover billionaire. Why? Well, it's the name. Well, like everyone wants to watch that. Right. Right. But the right. truth is, is I had a, I had a hundred bucks. Like it, well, I didn't have a billion dollars. I don't have a billion dollars. I'm never gonna have a billion dollars. Even if I did, I couldn't spend it in my lifetime. People don't know what that is. 
Oh, it's huge wealth. If it, to have a billion dollars, you I mean, it's really although I love to have that, you know, that that opportunity to spend it. It is hard to spend. Now you on the show, let's let's give everybody the the framework of this. On the show, you were dropped off in Fresno, California. By the way, had you been there before? No. No. no never no. been there. And you and they gave you a hundred dollars, a truck, and a cell phone. Did you know anyone or did you know what you were going to do? I mean, you had to be thinking about it ahead of time a little bit, right? Well, I had thought about it the year before when it first came my way because I was working on this platform called Lotto House and I was working on Help for Homelessness. And, um, you know, the kind of under underprivileged. And um, but it, it wasn't... It, when I, when I first sat down with discovery to do undercover billionaire, the concept of it was overwhelming to me because I just didn't feel like I fit the category of being a billionaire first of all, but that's, it was really quick that I understood what they're trying to do. And that's to create a movement on American pride. Mm. So once I figured out what it was, it was COVID we were done. And I called, I called the producers and I said, you know, Hey, what happened? They're like, COVID happened, you know? And, uh, and then in July it got greenlit when I think they figured out how to insure it. Remember that was, there was a big gap there where no one was doing anything. And they called and they said, can you go? And I said, when? And they're like, Friday. Tomorrow. Yeah. That's the way TV works. For those those people don't know that they don't care about your schedule. I mean, when I used to do my show on Bloomberg, I owned the show and they would call and say, we're leaving Thursday. Hey, look, I got something going on on Thursday. You know, they don't care. They don't care. They were, they had all their team and they were like Friday, my birthday, like, let's go. And then um, we, we, uh, we drove the the way that that we said goodbye to everybody here. And then you basically have a walkie talkie and I can't use my navigation in my car. Everyone was different. I didn't know about Monique and Grant to be clear. No one, I signed a standalone contract. I had no idea till the end. Um, and I, I drove, I wanted, it was a caveat of COVID that I could get home in like four or five hours because I didn't, I knew it wasn't sure if we could fly. Um, so there, and then we, I, here I am in Fresno. I see the sign and, and I, uh, Googled Fresno on my phone when I got it and, uh, read about the farming aspects of it first. What does the city do? Which I think is step one in, in, you know, my brain about yeah. your environment. Kind of Where go look you? at the landscape, see what's right. out there. What am I walking into? What are the strengths and weaknesses of the community? Right? What is the culture here? What are people yeah. doing? And then I um, I just went to work immediately in, in farming because I had, had started a farm uh, during the pandemic at my ranch. And I was up to, you know, 10 acres of row vegetables, which is a lot of food. I was yeah. doing CSA. I was quite busy with it. And I felt this need to parlay that into something in Fresno because I didn't land there by accident, right? I didn't go from starting up a farm, knowing nothing about it to landing in Fresno by accident. That's the universe telling me something about food. And I just, I believe, uh, I believe in my intuition now, um, which was a big lesson in Fresno, uh, especially going back in history, all the times that I had a, like a little inclination to do or not to do something. And, you know, didn't quite trust intuition. It just seems so airy fairy to me, yeah. but it's a thing. Yeah. Isn't it? 
Oh, it is a huge thing. That gut, that piece of it, that empirical information, which you then get from experience, that teaches you. Somebody like yourself, serial entrepreneur, you've done this experience, this experience, this experience. It tells you where to go. Speaking of where to go, let me take a quick break. I'll be right back after this message. C-Suite Radio. Hey, we are back and we're live casting right here on LinkedIn and Facebook. This is all business with Jeffrey is it right here on C-Suite Radio, world's largest business podcast network. Of course, I'm talking to Elaine Kalati, the star of Undercover Billionaire, where she was dropped off in Fresno with a hundred bucks, a pickup truck, and a cell phone. Sounds like a dream come true to me, quite frankly. But nonetheless, uh, she had to go there and get started and start a business from scratch. In 90 days, she had to put it together. So you also got a job, as I recall in the episode. You got a job. How did you explain the camera crew following you everywhere. Well, what I, I came up with a story and my story was, hi, I'm Elaine Mayringe and I'm new to Fresno. And we are- How'd you come up with Mayringe? By the way, is that your real real maiden name or real no, name? No, 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 no. Elaine Just... Mayringe was a pioneer in the 1920s um, in the Pacific Palisades in Malibu. Um, the Adamson family, which owns the majority of Malibu is the back half of her family or front half, I guess, because I think it's her daughter married in. And she- um, she was like a real pioneer. She was a woman in a dress with a gun and a buggy, and she wouldn't let um, the ra- railroad go in front of her house. There you go. The so, that, see, that, that's like like typecasting right there. I get it. Okay. Yes, so you, it was so amazing. You, so how'd you explain Elaine Marenge to the to the job? I did. I just left the name alone. She, her name was Rhoda Mayringe. and so I just left Elaine Mayringe. And most people were like. I don't think they, they were like weird name. And then I said, um, we we're filming a documentary on farming. And would you mind if they come along? And, you know, I've said this before. Most people don't understand the size of the team. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah. you know what I mean? And so, oh, yeah, yeah. You've got at least two, did, or three, you got two or three camera people. You got a sound person, typically, maybe a producer or two, and maybe someone is a grip or helping out. And then maybe another couple people, right? Every single Correct. a big yeah. team. Yeah. yeah. And the black bands and all that. So it, yeah. it, you know, new intros, I was very like one camera, really quiet, um, which, you know, is frustrating. I know for the team, but you just don't want to blow your cover. I mean, you don't want to blow your cover because if people get suspicious in a town like that, it just spreads like wildfire. Oh yeah. 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 If I came across anyone that I thought was going to blow, I just like, would just, you know, absolutely divert immediately. Yeah. That was the hardest part is to not get found out. So when you you literally transformed a mom and pop restaurant into Shep's Club, which is more than a restaurant, explain what it is. Well, I happened upon it because I saw the word in in the parking lot and when I was sitting in the 7-Eleven parking lot and I needed a place to stay and I just wasn't comfortable sleeping in my car. Yeah. Um, so so I happened upon it. It took me about probably a good 10, 15 days, which is a lot of time to realize that I could actually do something with it. Um, which is, I think I just was so scared and boxed in and like, how I was going to get to a million, how was I going to get to where I was going to get and even eat right. A hundred dollars goes nowhere. And Russell who owned it was, was interesting to me because he was such a genuinely nice guy and he had just like abandoned the family business. And that's a big deal. Like I, Wow. But what had happened was on the 4th of July, he had spent his last $5,000 on getting food to do a big dinner and reopen. Mm. And he got shut down after he purchased the food, after he prepped it, after he cooked it. 
And he was just like done. He just said, yeah. he just literally locked and left. He went and started driving a, a cement truck for the light rail overnight, mm. like literally working 12 hour shifts to feed his family. You do what to, you have to do, doing what you have to do. Right. right? And I was like, wow. And, and being in the Palisades and being in like, you know, my big ranch and being in big LA, I had not met a guy like Russell in years, yeah. in years. So it was, I just, I loved him. He reminded me of everything good in a guy, you know, everything wonderful in a man, you know, yeah. he was That's, that, that guy. It, it's, it's interesting that you get these kinds of, uh, you, you run into these people. So let me get back to the episode. You you offered up a business strategy called delay when you pay. What was that about? Well, for also in construction, I learned to work on a schedule of values, which is very interesting. And I think across the board, we make the mistake of signing a contract and giving someone a big deposit, and then they don't deliver. And ninety percent of litigation is over breach contract. And you know, we spend. I spent. I don't even want to tell you how much money in legal fees last year. It's a nonstop problem. <clears throat> and so when I say delay, when you pay, think about it for a minute. If I came, if you came to me and told me you were going to do a scope of work this big, right. And I gave you a 10% deposit. All right. Why would I not pay you on the schedule of values so that you're hundred percent paid at the end? But typically what happens is people either bill hourly and you have no idea how much they've gotten done, which is a nightmare. Or they set the payment schedule based on dates versus on earmarks of certain production of documents of, of work product. So I delay when you pay always. I don't. I'm show me the show me the money. Show me why I'm giving you a check. Yeah, which is a really tied to conditions of satisfaction. I like that. That's really cool. A lot less litigation. I can tell you yeah. that. Yeah. So what you learn? What did you learn from the show experience? You know, like when I did my show on Bloomberg, I did Celebrity Apprentice. There was lots of lessons that I had coming out of that. What did you learn? I think my biggest takeaway value was about my my incredible education on farming and small farming in America. Obviously, like we we definitely need to work on supply line for small farmers. Um, the blockchain or however you want to do it, but something's got to, something. I'm working on something really big, really huge. Um, that was my takeaway in terms of business and really how we feed America. And, but on a personal level, I am absolutely certain that the American dream is alive and well in this country and that we are far more united than divided and that people just want to earn money and take care of their families and have some sort of security in their lives. And they don't want to fight about politics. They are not that divided. And I really got a lot out of Fresno. And it wasn't just Fresno. It was the fact that anyone that I asked to get involved and to help, you know, for whatever reason, even if they didn't make it through the process, they, they put forth effort. And that to me is a big deal. Yeah, I think, and I think with the, the, the they also want a way of life, a quality of life now which I think COVID's kind of pushed us through. Like, I'm not doing that. I like some of this stuff that happened as a result of COVID. And I want some of that and I want to keep it. I think that's a big thing. Hey, let me ask a question. You, you uh, We have to talk about one of your most famous projects, which is the House of Rock in Santa Monica. It sparked, a, it even sparked a change in city ordinances, as I recall. Can you explain oh. to our listeners what it was and why it was so controversial? Well, um, 
there's a couple of things I could say that are positive and a couple of things that I could say that are negative. And I try to steer, steer toward the positive, but, you know, things run amok sometimes um, when people get into sort of a mob mentality. And we've mm-hmm. seen that during the election. Um, we have to follow the rules, you know? And so I went to the city before I opened house of rock and I got what's called a TUP, which is a temporary use permit for the events that we were going to be having and got permission in advance. But homeowners on the street were worried that I was going to have a, you know, I I had already worked with Esquire magazine and done the ultimate bachelor pads. And I had a history of these party houses and they were concerned. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm not a party animal. I'm probably the worst, but that, that was not this. We were raising money for charity and we had, you know, in really important events and really important money that we needed to hand out. And we, we needed to help. We needed help. We did not need interference. And so I just fought the fight and, you know, house of rock was a, an art project. It was, it's a, it was a metaphor for music. I turned the house into a studio, literally each room had a mic panel and and now I'm doing that again. I, I, I have a pro, pro project that I'm working on now called The Venue. And we're creating um, live streaming music, you know, that, that's, and the reason I'm doing it is because we need it. The world needs it. The world needs to hear music that's made every single day when, when musicians wake up in the morning and they're being creative. Our art is suffering from COVID. We can't perform live. We can't go to, you know, ballets. We can't go to concerts. We can't go to, you know, outdoor food festivals and Coachella is canceled. Everything's canceled. So house of rock is coming back, baby. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fantastic. Well, next time you're in Santa Monica, stop by and see uh, heroic Italian. I don't know if you've ever been there. Uh, my buddy, Jeffrey Mayer, he owns it and he does extreme foodies and he's a great guy. I've known him for Oh, decades back when he was at Accenture and I was a CMO of Eastman Kodak. So, hey, Elaine, what a pleasure to have you here. I can't wait to watch the episode officially and see it all. Undercover Millionaire talking with Elaine Kalati right here. And she is an undercover. No, I said undercover millionaire. It's undercover billionaire. Let's make sure we get the B instead of the M. It's a big zero or two that we want to make sure that we point out. So thanks for being here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Thank you for having me. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned. Well, one of the big things is the conditions of satisfaction. I've talked about this before, but she really helped set those up when she got into the business and got into doing what she's doing. And I thought that was another thing that came out of this. I also loved her concept of essential Oh, wait, existential wealth. That's how she says it. Sometimes I get uh, verbal dyslexia, but existential wealth. Well, what is it that you can do that you add value and you can provide outside of what you do every day? So what's what do you deliver? What's the value that you deliver? I love that. And I learned that right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett on C-Suite Radio. Don't forget, tell your friends all about the show and C-Suite Radio. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.